think asking questions both in professional relationships and frankly in personal relationships has always really, really moved the ball. This is Career Paths with Teal, and I'm your host, Dave Fano. Today's guest is probably one of the more driven people I've had the chance to come in contact with. It's Jason Shaw, who started a business when he was 15, ran it for seven years, and then sold it at the age of 22. Shortly after that, he started working at Yammer, one of the more incredible companies of the time, which was ultimately acquired by Microsoft. After that, he went on to work at another incredible company, Amazon. After being at Amazon, he took on being an entrepreneur in residence at Sherpa Capital and is now a product lead at Airbnb. What we talked about is his drive to be close to impact and understand the impact is happening on the company and the broader world it exists in. He's got the heart of an entrepreneur, but adapted into so many different contexts and so many different companies. So I'm really excited for you guys to hear our conversation and hear how Jason talks about managing a career in product and jumping between being an entrepreneur and working at larger organizations. Thanks everyone for joining. We're with uh, Jason Shaw today. Super excited. I, I think before we jump into it, I, I need to um, sort of talk about how this came about. You know, I, somehow or another, Teal got on Jason's radar and he sent me the most kind email just being like, what you're doing is cool. I like what you guys are doing. I like what it stands for. Anything I can do to help, let me know. So just like completely unprovoked, just like truly uh, an intent to give. And, uh, and I, I knew that we had kind of a bit of a growing product management community. You know, we're trying not to be like functionally specific. We've got a lot of career switchers in our community. And so giving people the right amount of depth that in a breath has been really important for us. So I just immediately replied and said, well, actually, <laughs> it'd be great if you would do a career conversation with us. And like within minutes, he replied, absolutely, I'd love to. So uh, I can't thank you enough, Jason, for doing this. I mean, we had never spoken before. And just like to do that kind of act was so, so nice of you. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. Very excited to be here and be a part of the community and find that especially with COVID more and more now, this is how we're you know starting relationships and building relationships. So excited to be here. We always kick it off with, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So Jason Shaw, currently professionally, I work in our product organization at Airbnb, focus on our core homes business. Um, but I've spent most of my life and most of my career kind of dabbling between being an artist on one side and being a workaholic on the other side. On the, on the professional side, I've uh, started two companies and done that for about 10 years. One was in the education space and one was in the future of workspace, which is obviously super relevant these days. And then worked at a mix of companies like Airbnb, Amazon, Microsoft. Uh, but on the personal side, I, I love to write. Um, and living in the Bay Area, obviously, there's uh, no scarcity of things to do. And sheltering in place is probably uh, not so bad here, I would say, especially as the winter months set in. So that's a, a brief kind of summary of both professional side and personally. Thanks for sharing that. All right. So we like to kind of talk about people's career chronology because really very few careers are linear. And I think yours had some cool sort of swerves in it. When you first started to think about work, and I think most people do it sort of in early education, high school, college, if they went, you know, well, you know, where, so I'll say broadly, what, what did you study and however you define that? When I was younger, I I was lucky where I, I'm the youngest of three, and I had two older siblings that I got to take the best of, from in my opinion, where I had a very uh, studious older sister, and so I I thought for a period of time maybe I would be a lawyer or maybe I would do something more academic, and then I had a brother who's kind of classic middle child, uh, troublemaker of sorts, but also very entrepreneurial. So for example, when we were kids, he 
found a way to do arbitrage with selling Nike shoes to people in the UK because they were sold for whatever reason, 30% or 40% cheaper in the US. So before he was 18, he was an eBay power seller and I was just his right hand man learning how to do that. (laughs) So I think that combination of influences plus kind of hardworking immigrant parents where they would cut out magazines about Bill Gates from Microsoft or Jeff Skoll from eBay and leave it on my desk or bedroom and, you know, try to lightly nudge me in a certain direction, but they were never too heavy handed such that I couldn't develop my own opinion about what I wanted to do with my life. I think that mix of influences pushed me down a certain path. And so I actually ended up starting my first company when I was 15 because uh, I was just really excited about building stuff. And I didn't, was too young and ignorant to know kind of what I didn't know about how hard that would be. And, and that ended up being a seven year journey that kind of got me hooked on startups and building and kind of realizing in that sort of Steve Jobsian idea of kind of everything around you was made up of people no smarter than you. I feel like I got a real world version of that experience at a young age. And for example, a fun fact there is I didn't know how to code yet. So I hired developers who actually were in the same town from where my parents had emigrated out of in India. And just doing that and learning, okay, you can meet people around the world. This was in 2005, uh, hire them, uh, get them to build something, do calls on, I think it was MSN Messenger was the, the kind of best in class thing at the time, which obviously things have changed a lot. So anyway, I'll pause there, but kind of, that was, I, I kind of have been lucky to have a lot of really good influences in my life and take chances that ended up you know, paying off and, and letting me then double down on what I believe to be interesting problems and, and meaningful uh, impact. How'd you, how'd you land that first job? Like when, when you made that transition out, um, you, you're exploring a lot of different things. And when you said, okay, I'm going to work here, like what was, what was the approach and how'd you get in? After, after I sold my first company, which is really weird to be a founder, not have a real job. And then what I did was I took time off and I was kind of tinkering with new ideas. And I got interested in this future of workspace before I actually started working on it in a formal capacity. And to be honest, before my first job, I was a little bit, I think I was far less humble than the average person going into their first job. Because I think there's something about being your own boss for seven years that makes you feel, I don't need to work for anybody. I'll just start companies the rest of my life. And I think I quickly realized how foolish that was. And I think uh, I started to gravitate towards product fairly early in my career because I felt a strong kind of resonance from having been a founder, I feel like. As a product leader, it's fundamentally about solving problems. And I've gotten to Airbnb, where the product is a real-world product, versus at Amazon, we were building a business unit around the future of work, so things like Alexa for business, and video conferencing. And my first company was in education, where was, hey, there are a bunch of students who are from low-income families. They don't have access to educational resources that kids from suburban families might have sometimes, or more wealthy families might have. Why don't we go build something digitally that can give them access? It's this threat of problem solving. And I think when Yammer came along, that was my first real job where I worked on the product management team there. It's kind of my first large organization where I got to, it was a couple hundred people, grew to 500 people before the Microsoft acquisition. And I think for me, I just felt this strong connection of, oh, wow, I could still solve problems with a big team, but it doesn't have to be me that's worried about payroll or you know keeping the lights on um, all the time. So kind of how I came to it first as a founder and then realizing actually product, if I'm going to be in a large organization, is a great way to channel a lot of that energy and build that skill set. 
So can you talk a little bit about from there then kind of your career chronology and you can go into as little or as much detail as you want, you know, how you thought about jumping to different companies. You know, you were a product manager and entrepreneur in residence, you've been a board member, then you've jumped out and started a company again and then gone back. So would love to hear some of like the thought process as you kind of shaped it and stuff. Yeah, definitely. So I think, as you pointed out, as we started to discuss, you know, before the call, this idea of nonlinearity, I think, is a really powerful one. I think we're very much taught to, you know, school is structured. Everybody has to go to these grades, learn this curriculum year after year, right? And and maybe a lot of that is obviously, you know, being questioned now because we kind of had to, given the public health situation and environment. But I think that's something that's always drawn me, uh, and I've had the the support and the self-confidence to feel kind of, frankly, I take a lot of inspiration from like the enlightenment thinkers and the, the Renaissance kind of thinkers where mathematician, writer, politician, physicist, philosopher, like they, they did it all. And I feel like that interdisciplinary way of thinking is something that I get a lot of energy from. And so I've applied that to my career where after I went to Yammer, stayed there for a couple of years. And during that time, Microsoft acquired the company. And I think this was before Microsoft was cool again. Uh, and I was I was somewhat kind of bearish on staying at a large company. I Yammer was my first real job outside of starting my own company. And so I felt like there's still a lot to learn. I want to get back at it. And so that was when I met the team at Triple Ventures and left to go be an EIR there, where I felt the way I thought about it was thinking, okay, I have some I have some founder experience, I have some product experience. My first company was not venture backed. And so I thought the opportunity to go work at a VC firm, see their deals. And then to be honest, I think also at that time, capital was a little bit harder to come by than I feel like it is these days. And so the the draw of going to work with a team where there was kind of a understanding of, hey, we'll back the company as soon as you're ready to to start something. And so for me, that... Can you talk a little bit about... Um, what an EIR is, because there may be some folks on the call. It's a it's kind of a very unique position. It's super cool. You kind of have to, I think, meet some prerequisites to even be qualified to get a job like that. Yeah, definitely. So an EIR is an entrepreneur in residence. And at most VC firms, they will bring in somebody who has maybe been somebody they've invested in before to spend some time looking at deals, sitting in on partner meetings, providing some feedback, maybe working with some of the founders, but ultimately somebody who would probably spend less than a year in, in most cases I've seen, usually six to 12 months, building a thesis in a new area. So perhaps right now, for example, somebody may have a thesis around how e-commerce is going to change in the next 10 years. And that person may have previously started, you know, let's say StubHub or may have started a Shopify competitor before or something like that. And then they develop that idea in partnership in many cases with the team at that firm. And the VC firm will invest in that company and the founder will start their next thing. So it's it's sort of a hybrid between getting to have, usually it's not an investing role, but playing some part in that, some part sabbatical on some level, but then mostly once things start to really turn, it's about starting a new company. Yeah, that's awesome. So I didn't mean to cut you. I should have asked after. No All right, so you did the EIR role and then... Sure. And then in the course of that, as kind of described, I realized that for me, the, you know, I had been at Yammer, had been really excited. For me, a draw I always had was you know, I, I don't want to work on something where I can't truly believe that if I was not working on it, it would it would just happen anyway. Like if I know it's just going to happen anyway, it, it's a big turnoff for me. And, and maybe that resonates and connects with a lot of this community. 
And so and an example of that is like, at one point I worked for McKinsey for three months and I knew I was going to hate it. I knew I was going to be terrible at it. And no offense if anybody here, you know, currently does or has in the past, but, you know, I knew that I was going to be so far removed from actually making that impact that it just wasn't going to be for me. But, it, you know, I did it, validated that hypothesis. And the reason I, I share that is that then I left Yammer because I wanted to build a new company around meetings and meeting productivity. Uh, so this was 2013, 2014. And I was post Microsoft acquisition at Yammer. And I was at the world's largest productivity company, right? Office, Outlook, et cetera. And yet I was wildly unproductive. And this was true, I think, of tens of thousands of people, at least at that time in Microsoft's history, where between meetings and bureaucracy, it was mostly about fake work, if you will, um, and not really getting things done. And so I, I was really excited to leave Yammer after the acquisition, things started to change. That's a bit about my journey and it's uh, I'm very grateful for it and very excited for what's ahead. It's awesome to kind of hear it. And and what I felt like I I heard in there is you're very driven by like your proximity to impact. You weren't too concerned with how. It's like that means working somewhere, starting a company. It feels like, and just by looking at your sort of career chronology, that really mattered less to you. So how did you get clearer and clearer on... Because you even said, I left here because it was I wasn't providing the impact. How did you get clearer? And like maybe even like, where do you feel like you are now in your journey of like understanding what that impact is and to use it as a way to make decisions on if it's actually moving you closer or further away from it? Yeah, that's a really thoughtful question. You know, this is going to sound a little meta, but I think that sometimes one just has a feeling and where it's, it's impossible to escape. Oh, am I... What am I doing here does it matter and that's on the negative side of course and then there's the positive side of uh for example at airbnb earlier this year you know after covid initially hit we built this program to help house healthcare workers so that they didn't have to go home and possibly infect their families or uh, they could be closer for traveling nurses for example which was very common in the u.s they could stay closer to the hospital where they were working as opposed to commuting two hours back and forth every day and situations like that, I think, are, are much more clear on their own face because there's a direct human impact that you see messages from them or uh, you can just, in a crisis environment, sometimes that impact is much more obvious. I think it's that middle area, right, where it's a lot harder to tell. And I think for me, I guess what I would say is that it's kind of a, I, I approach it as a very logical process of, okay, what is the company's mission? What am I doing to contribute to that? And then coming back to that point from earlier, if I was not here, what would be happening? And I've been in environments where if I was not there, nothing would change, honestly. And it wouldn't matter really, because maybe I was just a warm body that was helping push along something that would otherwise be happening. But then especially, and this is why I've always loved starting companies, is that you really, you, you know that the company would not exist if you were not doing it. And then in spaces that aren't full competitors, you also know that it wouldn't just be some other company that would be there doing it. So I'm not sure if I have a great answer other than suggesting that for me, it's been a very intellectual process of peeling back the layers of, okay, if, if I was not here, what would happen? Or if we approached it in this way as opposed to this way, how would that be different? Um, and then just being really intellectually honest and rigorous because I think there's a emotional desire to always believe that what we're doing matters. But I think then there's a intellectual process. And if we can keep ourselves honest there, um, that partnership of how I feel and how I think about something has always helped me get clarity. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I love that as a framework. What would happen if I wasn't here? Because then 
what it forces you to do is to think about like, what is it that's unique about you that's moving that forward? And, you know, what is it about those activities that charge you up and that make you feel that in a weird way, you know, yeah, not like to this word, the language exactly, but like what makes you uniquely, you know, positioned to add value. And so that's going to be a, a mutually energizing thing. Yeah, I agree. And if I could just quickly build on that, I think that you remind me of a statement that I think I've come to over the past 15 years of my career that's crystallized this, where what I like to say is, I like to observe the world and make meaningful, unique improvements. And for me, that summarizes it because I think just to kind of break it down for a second, even though it may sound obvious, I actually don't think many people really observe the world. I think we're too busy all the time. We're too distracted. And I actually think paying attention to what's going on in our communities or at our places of work and and seeing problems and, and making a difference, I think is increasingly rare in such a distracted and hyper kind of uh, busy world. And then I also think that this intersection of doing something meaningful that is also unique is rare. I think there are things that we can all do that are we know to be useful things for the world, but there's 3 billion other people doing it. And maybe it's the youngest child in me, but a unique aspect to it really matters. I feel like it does need to be special in order for me to feel like I am I am doing something that means something to me that if I, again, coming back to if I were not here, it would happen anyway. So to me, that's, that's always helped guide my thinking. And, and I think it is focused on improvements as opposed to just changes, right? Like people say, change the world all the time. And it's not always clear to me. I, I, I like the spirit of it, but if we're really academic about it, like, but you want to improve the world, right? Like that's what it's actually about. I'm a bit of a hypocrite in the sense that whenever I, I've I've spent more of my time in my career, you know, starting companies or being part of companies that I started than working at companies. So it, it's it's tricky for me when people ask me, it's like, should I start a company? I say absolutely not. I say don't start a company. And you know, part of what we're trying to do with Teal is help people take an entrepreneurial approach to their career. And and ultimately what I really do tell people is it's actually less that I don't mind working at a company. I, I have things, I, I definitely have like a high autonomy quotient, but that just raises the bar for the places I want to work. You know, I want to work on things that I think are important. And I, I really don't care about like the the structure by which it is. You know, I, I want to be around a certain amount of people. And obviously the bigger companies get, it's a little trickier to kind of curate the people you're around. But I'd I'd love to hear a little bit about the sort of, you know, you've you started a company, worked for a while, started a company, worked for a while, and you've worked in also a lot of different environments. You've worked at like mega corporate environments, small startup, you know, sort of pre-IPO, which I think makes you like incredibly well-rounded in terms of existing in, in the world. But I'd be curious to hear about that and like if there's certain environments that like pulled more towards you. And, and I guess we can address one of the questions is like, what, what were you looking for in cultures in each of those environments? One metaphor that has stuck with me about a way I think about my, my life, my career is more of a map than a ladder. Mm. And that's, that's really resonated with me. Like I would like to, you know, when I'm eventually retired, be able to look back and say, okay, no, I, I was less focused on getting to the top more. I just had really interesting and valuable experiences. And I think that that actually ends up tracking pretty well with uh, the more material version of success, but it's just a less common way of thinking about it. And so I think with respect to cultures that have resonated with me, it's a good point about different sizes of companies, but ironically, I think they're more similar than they appear to be. Mm. You know, I remember when I decided to join Yammer at the time, 
the company I think it was uh, had raised a Series B, and it was a bit bigger than I had envisioned myself joining. And yet, the culture of a 200-person company at the time was actually way more entrepreneurial than some of the startups that I was interviewing with at the time. Actually, uh, 15, 30-person companies, and and that drew me in. And I think a lot of that probably has to do with David Sachs, who's a well-known founder and now investor, and he created that sort of environment where. It really did feel that way that even as an individual, you could have an idea, you could challenge him, you, you could create impact even at a company that was larger. And, and so I think that for me personally, I think the cultural things that I valued the most, I would say, number one, meritocracy. And I say this aware of a lot of the kind of false meritocracies that are out there when there really are disadvantages for certain marginalized groups in a company. But I say that in the sense that I feel like there are companies, and they're they're rarer than they like to broadcast. As many companies like to claim that they're meritocracies, but I think when I met with the folks at Yammer, when I was talking to the team at Amazon, I felt like, great, I can build something and I can create something, and that will be valued. And it's it's less about let's say politics, or it's less about stature or rank in a certain other credentialed way or what have you. So that was a big draw. I think. Culturally, also, this idea, and I think it's a controversial topic too, this idea of you can bring your full self to work. And I, I think that it means different things to different people. But what I personally think about in that context is when I'm at work, whether it's at Airbnb or in the past, an environment where somebody can speak freely and say, okay, this is, this is how I think about this. Tell me if I'm wrong. I want to be challenged. But we can just operate without the kind of air of, Formality sometimes, which I think I, I think there should be propriety, obviously, and certain like cultural standards. But specifically, I think the idea that uh, I can share, for example, with my colleagues at Airbnb, hey, I wrote this essay about something completely unrelated to work, um, and have them provide me with thoughts and reactions to it, and I don't feel like there's this separate Jason at work and separate Jason at home. As a result, I've been able to grow a lot faster as a person. Um, one quick example of that just to make it a bit more substantive. I remember last year uh, with I was meeting with one of my colleagues and I realized that it was really challenging for me to give them feedback. And so I just asked, how do you like to receive feedback? And this person is somebody that's more senior to me in the organization. And he, he was very blunt because we had this kind of free-flowing uh, culture. He's like, two things. If it's personal, just tell me directly. That's fine. If it's about strategy, I think you you have your opinions and you think A plus B equals C. But when you tell me A plus B equals C, I'm looking at Z and, and I see it completely different. So what I'd like is for you to bring me your observations and let's talk about them. And then let's make a decision together about it as opposed to coming directly with the decision that you made or a point of view that's already baked on something. And that itself, people may disagree with that or feel it was too blunt or whatever it might be. But I feel like I've been able to grow tremendously in the last couple of years because I'm in an environment where we're just telling it like it is and not in a rude manner, but in a direct manner that I think fits more with the kind of radical candor model where it's not just the candor piece, but it's also caring enough about somebody that you will be that honest and direct with them. So I'll pause there, but I think that outside of the normal things that people say about cultures, I think the ability for somebody to to have their value matter in an organization and and not have too many barriers to just having your work have again have impact and move up in, in that sense of meritocracy 
but also I think this sense of a, a very small, if any, barrier uh, between who I am and how I speak kind of on a personal level versus professionally. Yeah, there's, a two, there's two things I hear there. Like, you know, one is psychological safety, right? Like no fear of retaliation. And there's lots of great research out there that shows that that's, that's one of the, if not the most contributing factors to great cultures and high-performing teams. And then the other is what well, like Covey calls as interdependence, right? Where like the, it's, everyone's working towards like the, the collective win. Right. And so that you know that these things that may be like individually uncomfortable are the best for the collective. And so it sounds like you've honed in on those two, which are amazing as like attributes of an environment you like to be in. Yeah, I think that's a great insight. And if I could just quickly expand, especially on the latter one with interdependence, I think I've seen organizations where, and Amazon, I think, spikes really highly on this. Coming back to that combination of high ownership and being vocally self-critical, where if something goes wrong, you could, I, I think when something goes wrong, right, it's a great indicator of what uh, the culture of an organization really is like. And I think I observe many meetings where either myself or others would say, here's what happened. Here's what I could have done better, or here's what we could have done better. Not so and so dropped the ball on this, or if so and so would just do this, it would be different. And again, that's easy to say, but I think having observed different types of cultures now, I, I think that that is something you can suss out that culturally matters a lot. And I think it builds, it's necessary for interdependence, right? Because people need to be owners and believe they're accountable, and they need to set that example constantly of here's what I could, could have done better so that everybody else approaches it the same way, which I think is ultimately the only way that people grow actually as a belief of, I could have done this differently as opposed to constantly believing that five other people, if they had just done something a different way, then it would have worked out. Because I feel like people don't often hear that when it's kind of a, it's a confrontational sort of uh, approach and it's a blame oriented culture as opposed to a high ownership and vocally self-critical culture. Yeah, I mean, like at, at the end of the day, right, careers are really about kind of identity management. And if you can't feel psychologically safe and you feel like being vulnerable or asking that dumb question is going to impact your identity, you can't get to a place where like your amygdala, amygdala is not like driving your career and you can and you can think in an interdependent way. You got to think about like, okay, is this going to be the thing I say that prevents the food from getting on my table? Like if that Maslowian like you know need is not met you just can't get there so actually we can use this as a good segue into one of the questions is you've worked in very large organizations and they can be like complicated political people have kind of different things that they're solving for you know Andrew's asked given product management in particular that you kind of need to be like the ultimate arbitrator especially in large organizations because you have reporting structures you've got stakeholder structures You've got like peer structures with engineering, like you're in the same org, but maybe not. And so how, what have you seen as like good strategies to kind of get everyone around the table together to be aligned on, on the same things when the company's not doing it for you? Like when you need to shoulder that. I know you've worked in good, in good cultures, but I would imagine you've, been, you've experienced this because it just happens. What are ways that you're able to get that ball moving forward and to get everyone kind of singing from the same hymn book? So I think, Something that I've learned over time that's worked well is you can flip people to stop thinking about the constraints and instead get on the same page about what the ideal end state is. I've seen that work really well. So specifically, for example, to your point, 
sometimes a constraint will be maybe we want to go build something and engineering says, well, we don't have the resources to do that, right? Or maybe we want to pilot a new program with our operations team and operations might want to take a very manual and dedicated approach early on. Whereas engineering says, well, why don't we just build this to scale and we could, here's all these cool things we could do if we did it this way. And I think sometimes it's, and it comes back, I think, to that part of our conversation about how distracted and busy everybody is and how you know, coming back to kind of thinking fast and slow too, right? And system one of our just kind of brain reacting very quickly and system two pausing and thinking about something more deeply. I think that I've found in, in a situation like that kind of fake example of conflict maybe between different functions or even, you know, between product and other functions. You know, let's say that when, let's say earlier in my time at Airbnb, if we wanted to pilot a new pr- program, like I was giving that example, I think if you can get everybody in a room actually and say, okay, what's our long-term vision? What do we want to accomplish, say, a year from now? Okay, great. Well, we all agree we want to build something that, that we're proud of eventually. Okay, well, what's the best way to do that? And it kind of depersonalizes things too and brings everybody into this thought process. And we might, in that example, reach a place of like, okay, let's run a pilot. Let's make it manual. Okay, great. Then we'll take the learnings from that because, oh, right, engineering, you hate building things that we have to throw away three months from now anyway, right? Okay, great. Then and I find that people, I mean, maybe it's too simple of an answer, but I feel like people's interests are more often aligned than they're not, especially for people who choose to work in the same organization where I, th- I think the things that are constant, generally speaking, are vision and mission. But what's different is like tactics and roadmap and resourcing and day-to-day. And so I've always found when we reset on like, what are we actually trying to do here and have a conversation about it and activate people to bring their best skill sets to, not let's say product or, or the leader of a team or the manager dictating, here's what we're going to do. But instead, uh, so-and-so, you're the leader on operations. How do you think we can best solve this problem? Likewise on engineering. I think it you know, really brings them to the table in a more of a problem-solving way as opposed to a opposing views uh, sort of way. And, and I've, I found that to be really effective in my career. Yes, if you've, you've encountered a situation where... And I'm getting the sense that you can like pacify situations well. You've got like an energy about yourself that's a calming. So maybe <laughs> maybe you've had to diffuse something like this where you've got someone who is just so worked up about what they think is important. Right? They, they have just like built it in their mind that it's like, this is the thing that needs to happen. And you kind of like work your way up in the org and they're like, hey, did you say that you, they need to do this? And they're like, nope. They have just like fabricated this situation that like, that button needs to be on the left. And if it doesn't, like the sky is going to fall. How do you kind of get, have you, have, you, have you been able to like get people out of that and be like, all right, like, come on, let's level up. Like some of the stuff you were talking about, like, you know, end goal, that doesn't really get us there. But like, have you, do you have any tricks to kind of like dislodge them from, from like the, on that bone, you know? <laughs> this makes me think about, and I'll try to be more specific in case it's useful, uh, it's useful to go through more specific stories, but you know, I remember when I was starting my last company, we had an engineer on the team who understandably, and that's part of why he wanted to work on the team, you know, had very strong opinions about what we should build and how we should build it. And there was a, a certain, he really didn't want to build our integration with Microsoft. He's like, that's, we had an integration with Google. He's like, this is going to be the worst. I've done this before in my career. It's not, you know, we don't want to go down that road. And I think that what it ended up, being about though wasn't actually about building that. It was actually at the time he felt like his voice wasn't normally heard in in discussions about how we would, and so it was about something else. And I think that 
that's not always the case. Sometimes, sure, somebody just really believes in one specific thing and it's a more kind of tactical discussion about that. And hopefully, again, you can have uh, then it's a more rational conversation, it's a pros and cons sort of conversation. Whereas this was kind of peeling back the onion and understanding like what is underlying how this person's approaching the situation. Like maybe they've been dissatisfied for 12 months. Maybe they have a personal situation going on. Maybe maybe they have a substantive point, but we're just not talking about it in the right way. We're talking about maybe we both agree we we should or shouldn't build it, but it's sequencing. And it turns out, oh, we actually thought X, Y, and Z were more important. You know, for example, let's prove out product market fit first with just the Google integration, which makes total sense before expanding because the Microsoft integration was about expanding the audience as opposed to testing the core hypothesis. And everybody would agree with that sequencing. And so that's what I've always found is that there's no one size fits all because all these things are context dependent. But I do think this approach of peeling back the onion as to, let's say, when somebody has a thing that they're really focused on and they believe it needs to be done that way and whatnot, I think in my career, at least, I've found that asking questions, understanding, asking questions is definitely, as a product person, I often have missed out on a lot of the best things that salespeople learn. But I do think that idea of ask questions and, and talk less has mm. been useful. I, I know I'm talking a lot on this call, but normally speaking in, in my day-to-day, I think asking questions both in professional relationships and frankly in personal relationships has always really, really moved the ball, especially when there's a logjam of some sort. No, that's great. That's great advice. I think cold outreach with taking a little bit of action. So we'll make this the last question. Seems like you've had to make a lot of tough decisions, whether to sell a company, whether to join a company. And so the question is around like your decision making framework, you know, and when you've had to make some of these big big decisions, what what's your process and and kind of how do you go about thinking about how you ultimately make the decision? For me, it's always started with where do I really want to go long term? And to be specific, for me, I I actually don't even want to work in technology. Like I I actually want to. I think there's so many interesting like problems uh, in the world. My parents are from India. I think there's a lot of interesting social and educational problems um, that I'd like to work on there and, and otherwise, and I could go on. But for me, that's always been my North Stars. How do I create a network, skills, capital that's going to let me go work on those problems? Homelessness in San Francisco is another one that's of interest. But I don't think that for me, the right path is to just go do that with very little resources, no network and no skill set. So I'm like, okay, if I want to go there, that's that's an anchor for me. And then two is just to keep it somewhat simple is, where am I right now and in life, right? And so candidly with Airbnb, for example, I was like, okay, we're a little bit more settled. I'm not ready to jump into the fire pit of four-person company. I would start the company myself if that's what I was going to do right now. And so this combination of where do I want to go with where is my spirit right now um, and what are my current needs in life to just oversimplify to just simply two axes has been a really helpful guide for me in making these decisions. Yeah, I think sometimes people try to get like very technical about the decision making. It's usually bigger things. It's not about like a dollar and a cent here. That's not going to be the stuff that's going to have you happy on the other side of the decision. Awesome. Well, this was super amazing. Uh, this is such a good conversation. You've got a few venues in which people can get in touch with you. You've got your amazing newsletter. You're on a couple of different channels. Can you share with folks on on the best way for them to subscribe and get more of these incredible insights? Sure. Uh, probably the easiest thing is is on Twitter, and I'm just at. It's pretty long. I'll warn you. It's Jason Yogesh Y O G E S H Shah. My full name. All right. Cool. We'll share those also. But if Twitter's your your preferred, that's that's good for everyone to know. Jason, thank you so much. First, thank you for reaching out. I really really appreciate it. Thank you for all these incredible like 
candid insights. And, um, and thanks for having such an awesome career journey to share with us. Well, thank you, Dave. It was a really fun conversation and looking forward to connect online and, and continue the conversation. Thanks, Jason. Have a good rest of your day and the rest of your week. It's only Wednesday. It feels like it's almost over, but you know. <laughs> yeah. All right, see thanks, ya. Dave. You too. Bye. Thanks. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Career Paths with Teal. Now it's your turn. Do you have an interesting story about your career that you'd like to share? Or would you recommend someone you'd like to hear from? If so, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note by heading to the show notes on this episode for the link to contribute. This podcast is sponsored by Teal, and our job is to help you land a job you love. As a member, you can dive deeper into all the conversations on our show. For information on how to sign up for one of our programs, visit www.tealhq.com. Conversations for this show were facilitated by me, Dave Fano, and Eric Martin. Produced for us by Rainbow Creative by Matthew Jones and Ritu Jagannath. Audio editing by Hammond Chamberlain. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.